it's Jody Butts, and welcome to At Risk. You probably know Senator Pamela Wallen best as a broadcast journalist, but she is also an officer of the Order of Canada and a member of the Saskatchewan Order of Merit. She has 14 honorary doctorates and has been named to the Canadian Broadcasting Hall of Fame. She was Canada's Consul General in New York and served on the Special Independent Panel on Canada's future role in Afghanistan before being named to the Senate in 2008. When Senator Wallen pens an essay on the media, I'm keen to read it and to talk about it. Not because the Senator and I see the world the same way, but because she has dedicated over three decades of her life to journalism and democracy, and I'm interested in her perspective. Does Canada have a free speech deficit? Was there a distorting amount of attention paid to the Nazi flag among Ottawa convoy members? Should people have the right to say anything short of hate speech on media platforms? There is some admitted light between the senators and my answers to these questions. But more importantly, we agree on the importance of civil discourse. And that makes for a great conversation. Thank you for joining me, Senator, and welcome to At Risk. It's a great pleasure. It's nice to see you and to talk with you and to exchange something with another human being. <laughs> Isn't it lovely and even more precious than it was before the pandemic? For sure. <laughs> so I wanted to talk to you about an essay you penned. Uh, the media is you, like it or not. So, <laughs> Senator Wallen, do you like it or not? <laughs> not particularly. Um, and I've got to say, I wrote the first version of this, I'm going to say, 20 years ago. Um thinking about what was happening with the proliferation of channels. You know, when I was growing up, there were two. And so, uh, you know, you you watched your news and you consumed your information in a in a very you and the rest of the your circle and your country. Everybody could go to work the next morning and talk about what the funny story was uh, as the kicker on the news. But as the channels proliferated, it became much more an individual's responsibility to choose what they watched and to try and discern whether that particular channel had a point of view or all of those issues, which now seem so trite when you live in um, the bazillion uh, channel universe, right? It's, it's endless. And I think what we've seen happen in response to that is that people have gone to their own particular echo chambers because it's just too overwhelming. And you tend to listen to people you agree with and not to others. Yeah, you know, you talk about that fragmentation of the narrative. And, you know, I must say, as I reflect on it, I sometimes think, it's bad, but I also see some good in it. Uh, do, do you see it as uniformly a bad thing or, or, or do you see anything redeemable about that? No, I mean, as a as a news and information junkie, this is heaven, right? Because you're, you have endless sources. If you want to know about something, you can you can do a deep, deep, deep dive. Right. So that's that's the plus. That's the upside. Um, provided you have time. 
provided that you can um, make judgment calls about all of that. But I think most people are busy. They've got to go to work. They've got kids to get to hockey games or all of the myriad things that go on in the course of a day and you don't have time to sort it out. So the shorthand then is, well, I like those guys on CNN or I like those guys on Fox. So I'm just going to watch them. Or in this country, it's, it's a little less obvious, but I think, uh, I think the issues are, are the same. And so, you know, it, I think on balance, it's not probably a good thing because I don't think most people have time to use the benefits that this uh, endless world of technology offers. And of course, there's just, you know, an equal proliferation of the demands on our attention. There's just more interests, more companies, more platforms trying to capture our interest as well. So so even if we want to stay focused, it's kind of harder to do today. Well, that's what that's what I think. It's overwhelming. And then the responsibility is on the individual, you know, in simpler times in the old days. Uh, and I worked in these. So I know what the process was like. You had to decide what you thought the 10 or 12 or maybe 15 things that people really needed to know about their country and and the world you know is the weather going to shut you all down um did the prime minister call an election is the war going on you know you you got that um very quick menu of what was going on in the world and then you could watch local news if you wanted to know what was happening there. Uh, Now it's very hard to, you know, so somebody was making that judgment for you and saying, here's 10 things. If you know that you'll be okay, you can get up and go to work tomorrow and, and the world won't end. Now there's just such an unlimited supply that it's hard to sort out what you really need to know. Um, and from what might titillate or interest you. So it's harder to make that distinction, I think, for everybody between what's interesting and what's important. Um, there's all sorts of things that are interesting about, you know, four-legged dogs and, and monkeys and all, just any number of gossip entertainment shows, Survivor, all of those things. But it's hard to figure out what's important if you have nobody kind of... Um, doing that editing process and getting it down to in some manageable form. So that's why I say like it's it, the media is you, it's kind of hard to say the media did this and the media did that, which they do. Um, And, but the thing is you have to choose whether you're going to watch that because you want to yell at your TV or whether you're going to find something else and some other way to inform yourself, but that's a complicated process. It is. And you also observe that maybe the quality of journalism has also gone down with the pro- proliferation of you know platforms uh, on which to promote it. Well, it's so um, competitive now that that's it. I mean, you the the judgment calls that networks or stations make or even websites or podcasts um, what they choose they want to make sure they're going to 
attract the most number of people, that it's going to be titillating so people will stay, um, that you're going to have the most gorgeous anchor so that somebody will want to look at the screen. So it is, um, I think that that is kind of a problem because that's we're we're right back to the interesting versus important. There's lots of important things that should be shared with the Canadian public or any public, but that doesn't necessarily keep people tuned to your particular channel. So you try to entice them with other things. And sometimes you find out that what should be the lead story, um, you know, is 10 minutes into the newscast or 10 minutes into the discussion and by then you might not you might have lost interest if if you're if you're not attracted by all those other bells and whistles yeah it's true it's you know there's just so much competition for eyeballs and, and ears these days yeah um and you describe the principles of journalism really quite eloquently you describe it as to seek truth report it fully and independently, and to do it while minimizing harm. Mm -hmm. From which tenet do you feel we've wandered the furthest from? Well, I think all of them. Uh, I have, you know, I, I used to do live television show in the morning called Canada AM for many years. And uh, that was, you know, that was conversation. What happened, happened. If you spilled your coffee, if you made a mistake, it was all there for the world to see. Um, but when that expanded, I mean, that used to be a time when, when news stories were prepared the night before, the day before, and edited and cut. We are now live. We're a live world everywhere. And we, there's just, there's just very little time distance and and thought between the collecting of of the information and the communicating of it so you're saying things and it's coming out of your mouth on a live broadcast and the anchor goes to you and say so what do you see you know what are you hearing and there's no judgment imposed on that there's no time to check the facts to find out who the person that you just put a microphone in their face and ask them to comment on what are the ever the event of the day is they're the issue you don't know whether that person is speaking the truth whether they have a vested interest whether they're conflicted so we've traded uh immediacy um and being in the moment for fact-based journalism and having that time to impose some judgment and some thought and most importantly some research onto it so i don't think we're ever going to go back because our attention spans collectively are now so short that you know we're not going to look at news that uh, that's four hours old or 10 hours old. This is a struggle that evening newscasts are having that people have access to all the information all day long. You're going to say at 10 or 11 at night that they haven't heard all day long. So it, it, it feeds its own uh, downside because then you have to have uh, something at the beginning that's going to grab people, whether it's truly reflective of what's going on or not. I mean, we're you see it on Parliament Hill with the protests. Um, lots of people 
talking about freedom and about mandates and about how they see their country and their world. And then you have a Nazi flag, and that is where all the cameras and all the attention goes. And because that's the shorthand for doing it. And when you reinforce the shorthand version of facts with this visual, it has a very powerful impact, which may not in fact be reflective at all of what's going on. And that's just true in any situation, but you know, that's kind of an obvious one. Yeah, it's funny, you you bring up the convoy, you know, one of the things I was talking about with friends is that it shocks me, we don't know who the people actually are, like, who are they? Where are they from? Like you read little bits and pieces like, oh, you know, the police chief said, you know, there there, there might be some Americans actually, you know, involved uh, in uh, in the convoy. But it's like, how do we not know this yet? But as we were, you know, kind of trying to unpack that, it's like, well, you know, it takes a lot of resources to figure out who each person is that that, that you see in, in a camera shot. And Maybe, maybe just the resources aren't there to do that kind of investigative layer. No, they're, they're absolutely not there. I mean, the, the news organizations and the media organizations uh, are not going to say, well, now we want a full bio on everybody before, you, uh, before we air their clip. Um, you know, that realistically, that can't happen. But we also have to impose some judgment about whether the flag is, you know, one lone wolf, somebody that locally comes out to every protest on Parliament Hill every week, regardless of whether it's, you know, BLM or truckers or whatever it may be, because there are those people uh, that that's, that's their moment in the sun. That's what they want. They know they'll get attention if they do something extreme or radical. Uh, do think we have to do a little more than what we do. And I think with the pressure to go live and be first, as opposed to accurate, uh, we lose a lot of our ability to even attempt to be fair and truthful in the explanation of who's there. I mean, I listen, I'm sitting in Saskatchewan. So I'm listening to my local radio and my local television, and I'm hearing from the truckers who drove from Saskatchewan. They are guys who took their own food. They took their barbecues so that they could cook it. They are not the ones breaking into a homeless shelter and taking food. So how do we start to make those uh, distinctions? How can we put in all the hands on the other in a very limited time. You know, you've got 30 seconds, tell us what you're seeing. And then we're on to the next thing. So I think we have to um, accept that this is our world, (laughs) because I, I don't think there's really any going back and then realize that it is on us to go and check as many sources as we can, if we really care about this or COVID or, um, you know, the the politics of the day, you have to and educate yourself about the issues so that you can put what you hear in context, because we're not 
the media is not providing the overall context anymore that it once could when it had more time to play with. Um, now everything is, you know, let's move on, let's move on, let's move on. So what goes first is context. And that's perhaps the most important part of, of any kind of communication at all. And journalism um, as you note in the essay, and as many have noted, is essential for democracy. Now, we say that a lot, but can, can you unpack, it, unpack that for us? Like, like, what is the relationship between journalism and a free press and democracy? Well, I think that the, the basic role of journalism is to give people information with which to make smarter choices. If I'm busy long working two jobs and and I've got kids and I'm busy with that and an election is coming up. Um, I want to be able to know who stands for what, who believes in what, uh, because I'm going to have to go and cast a ballot. So I could just listen to the channel that agrees with me or I agree with them and say, okay, I'm just going to, I'm just, I'm going to vote the way they seem to be telling me, which is that this is the smarter person. This is the guy we like. This is the woman that we think should have the job. And that bias is built in to most individuals and certainly into networks and stations. So it's more, it's so important for the media to transmit information in the most neutral way that they can so that people can assess that. Okay, I liked what uh, Joe had to say on Tuesday, but on Wednesday, he said something really, really stupid. So now I have to reconsider that. So let me go back the next day and see what else he's doing. But if, if you're already getting the views of the anchor of the station, of the reporter, whatever it may be, that is what's influencing you. You're already hearing that the reporter is saying a politically dumb move. Um, you know, it, it may well be, but that doesn't necessarily mean the individual is dumb. So it's, you know, I, I know that I'm talking a little bit about wishful thinking, but that is the job of journalism is to try to give people the information they need to make intelligent decisions about things that matter, like who they should vote for or what school they should send their kids to or whether or not they should take a trip. Um, and how is, you know, what, what are the COVID numbers in the place they want to attend? Should they bring their mother? You know, these we make a million of these decisions a day. And there's lots of inputs, but that's a very important one because it's kind of what you go to when you've, when everything else you've put into your head, then you, you go to somebody that you think should know more. You go to your Parliament Hill reporter because you think they should be informed about that. Or you go to your business reporter because you think they should understand what really happened in the stock market today. So people put a lot of trust implicitly and explicitly in these uh, people who transmit information. And sometimes I think in the world of journalism, there are too many other forces at play and you forget about that very basic responsibility that you have and the commitment that you've made to people by putting yourself in that place. Trust is complicated, 
right? <laughs> uh, it just is. Is it you ever? Know? <laughs> and it, uh, it takes a lot of care to earn it. And it takes uh, probably even more care to keep it. <laughs> yeah. What do you think journalism's done wrong to to have lost some of that trust? And uh, you you offer some, some uh, statistics in, in your essay, and um, you know we see it coming out of Pew and 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 other you know research yep. uh, groups, right? So is it just the speed? Is it just putting out one too many not fully verified? Uh, stories, or or is there something else at play in this breakdown of trust? Well, I think it's both things. I mean, it, it it's it is journalism that's on the run, and and just putting out what they're seeing without any ability to verify or what they might be interested in. And so, if there's if two or three things are flat out wrong, then people will start to lose trust in you. That's not a good thing to do because who wants to buy your newspaper or watch your channel uh, if you're wrong all the time? So, you know, there there's an attempt to deal with that. But there's also what people feel in their gut and in their heart. And and so that if you're saying things uh, to them that don't reflect their reality in any way and and or, or is just off the, you know, I mean, it sort of, I don't want to talk about authenticity because I don't think that's the same thing. People can be very compelling. But if you're giving a view of the world in which the reporter is saying, I mean, that's simply not important, or these people are simply radicals, or this idea just won't ever wash. And, and that is how that is what is at the core of the individual that's watching, then it the trust breaks down on that level too. It's, do you not hear me? Do you not know who I am? Um, you know, all the wise words that have been said about listening, <laughs> you know, that for too many people, it's just waiting for their turn to speak as opposed to hearing what the other person is saying. And I think that that has happen profoundly in our politics. That's, I think, why we see such polarization um, in the U.S., in Canada, in, in other Western countries. And that reflects itself then in the relationship to other institutions, the media being the most important one. If that trust breaks down in, in the system that <clears throat> we're all dependent on for making the trains run on time or the hospitals be able to deal with your illness or the schools being open, then you tend to lose trust in the people that are part of that institution in a larger way. The people that report on it, you know, in the, in the old days too, and I, I keep using this half in jest, but you know, you didn't go to Ottawa until you had done your time in the regions and understood how local politics worked and provincial politics worked and that you'd lived in two or three parts of Canada so that you had under some understanding of the differences and and why people have different views of the world than uh, the, you know than others i mean there's a very different view of the world if you're an oil worker in Alberta or if you live in an apartment in Toronto and you have an electric vehicle right those are two very different worlds so it's it's 
it's that ability to actually hear what the other person is saying. And that responsibility is part of the media too. It's not just a one-way street. They need to reflect back. And if their experience is just in one world and they haven't had that exposure to other parts of the country or other points of view, then it's almost impossible for them to do their job accurately or to even hear what people who aren't like them are saying. Mm, that's really interesting, sort of how how the process of, uh, if you can forgive the metaphor, like of raising a journalist, right? Like yes, a, of, yes. of taking them through their, their professional education. Yeah, yeah. I, I, you know, I mean, many, many organizations uh, you know, have very few resources to, to invest in, in editors, let alone in a long-term investment in the, in the growth and grooming of, of a journalist. Uh, I don't think that's happening today. (laughs) No, it isn't happening. And, and even on, you know, even in places like Ottawa, which used to be sort of the, the ultimate place that you strove to arrive at at some point once you'd earned your spurs. I mean, now given live everything and the competitive nature, it's is, you know, get as many as people as you can for the least amount of money that you have to spend and just fill the airwaves. And, you know, um, so it, I think there's a very different mindset about it all. And I'm, I, you know, again, it keeps coming back to these things, which is I, I don't think we're going to turn the clock back. Um, but we have to be careful about some of the things that are going on. I mean, the, uh, the willingness of news organizations to take um, money from governments. I mean, we have the CBC, of course, it's funded by taxpayers dollars. So, so people have a relationship, but if you're, if you're going to subsidize that industry, then it's got to be subject to the same scrutiny as if you're subsidizing the environmental projects, or if you're subsidizing the oil and gas sector. I mean, we have to look at what that relationship means and what it means for journalism. How is it going to be impacted? Just in the same way that we look at what does live mean? What does being short of resources mean? All of those issues. And, and you know, what I guess what troubles me in the largest sense and is that we don't have the same we're, commitment in this country. And I've lived in the U.S. and and certainly worked other places. I wish that we embraced um, free speech with the same enthusiasm that uh, some other countries do. It's, you know, our constitution is very, uh, is very different than, say, the U.S. Uh, situation. So we, it, it's something that we have to cherish and you know, I talk to my young nieces in the world and I, you know, you say things to them. Well, I don't put too much information out there. You don't need to answer that question with, you know, your home and a home address and your phone number and a picture. I mean, I'm exaggerating here slightly. And and their answer back to me is, who cares? This is how we live. Like, I don't I don't care about privacy because I know I can't have any. Um, and if and the only thing that I like in all of that is they seem to be embracing free speech in a different way, which is not going for censorship, but for turning the channel. If I don't like that, I don't listen to it. But 
then again, the downside of that is you're not exposed to ideas that you haven't thought of or views that are different than your own. And it makes it hard to learn the art of acceptance and tolerance and compromise, which is important in every aspect of our life, whether it's politics or, or making with your husband or wife or kids. We, we need to do that every day and we're losing our ways of practicing that. When I read your comment that there is a free speech deficit in Canada, I was, I was actually a bit taken aback. I was like, really? Like a <laughs> listening deficit? Yeah, <laughs> like 100%. Uh, but I'm like a free speech deficit. It's like, oh my gosh, like my phone is brimming with speech. Like it's just, it, it just seems like we have more platforms and more ways to share with more people our thoughts, whether they're intimate or public positions and everything in between. But I think, and, and just tell me if I'm wrong, but it, but but I think your perspective is is what what you just said. We we may have a free speech deficit because we're less tolerant of hearing things that we don't agree with. And more willing to cancel. Like this is the in the last um, few years, this has become uh, an, an acceptable um, kind of behavior. I mean, you see it, it doesn't matter, Whoopi Goldberg, Joe Rogan, you know, uh, people who say things that they're expressing an opinion. You may not like it. It may be offensive. That's the whole thing about free speech. Uh, is that if you don't protect speech that you disagree with, then you're going to have an increasingly hard time even protecting the speech that you agree with or the speech that you want to engage in. It is one of those issues where it can't be subject to um, a purity test. Uh, you know, I, I want to, for my own education, hear how people that I disagree with think. That's how I figure out whether they've got a point and they're going to convince me or whether my view that I disagree with them is only confirmed. But if I have a chance to hear them or if they are silenced at the first opportunity because they've offended somebody, then we're losing the very basic basic, basic concept of free speech. Free speech isn't a lot of speech everywhere all the time. That's a proliferation of speech. Free speech is the ability to say things that others will disagree with, because the person that's disagreeing with you needs the freedom to say what they want to say, because you're just going to disagree with that. Like it's such a, on one level, simple concept and it's become so complicated in this uh, world that we've now got where, um, and, I, and I don't want to diminish when people have an experience of feeling offended because, you know, you, you don't want to sit there and listen to a rant by a, a racist or a, or a Nazi talking about, you know, the Holocaust or the fact that it doesn't exist, but you can't stop people from having conversations. We have laws around specific things like 
hate speech. And I, and I have no problem with that. I think that's a fair and reasonable constraint on speech. But you can't have laws against stuff that you just don't like or that you disagree with. Yeah, I think that's where I struggle a little bit in this conversation, because I'm like, yeah, the government, you know, has to be very judicious with the way it regulates speech. Mm -hmm. So we can agree, like, obviously, we agree on hate speech, right? Like, it's like, okay, that's not protected speech. And it's the classic example, you can't yell fire in a theater. That's not when there's no fire. (laughs) You know, that, that that's not protected speech either. I think... I think where where it gets complicated for me is that I also feel like we conflate having access to platforms with freedom of speech. Like at the end of the day, the government isn't regulating those platforms. It's platforms making choices. And by the way, Rogan is still going to have his podcast. Like, I don't think he's going to lose his podcast. I'm pretty sure that even if Neil Young is mad, you know, it'll continue. And, you know, that's a good thing. Neil Young gets to make that decision. And and so does Spotify. And so does Joe Rogan until people stop listening to them. And then I think Spotify will take Joe Rogan off, right? Marketplace of ideas, right? Like you, yeah. you can share your your ideas, but you know, eventually, if if enough people don't want to listen to them, you're not going to find too many places to share them, right? Um, right. But yeah, I sometimes think we just get a little bit messy with the freedom from government interference versus the freedom to kind of say what we want wherever we want. I think those are two different things. Well, I it comes down to who's the arbiter, who gets to decide whether or not um, speech is is allowed, whether it, it continues. If if there are going to be incentives in the system uh, either directly or indirectly from government or influence. Like if, if you know, we're going to be judging uh, and deciding on legislation that affects your industry. And oh, by the way, uh, we'd like you to be a little tougher on, um, on some of the things that show up on your platform. So could you please do that? I've talked to an awful lot of people about this over the last a year or so on my own podcast in response to government legislation, which is coming again in a, in a different form. And because nobody can agree on who the arbiter should be, and because companies can't possibly do it, I mean, you know, Facebook or, or whoever can't sit down and look at every single word that is uh, uttered by somebody on their site and what they've found when they've tried to put the algorithms in place that will the word um, Nazi uh, and block anything that has that in is that they're ending up blocking uh, historical uh, historical looks and takes and and history itself about people needing to have access to that information so they can understand what happens so we don't make the same mistake over and over again. So people who know more than I on this issue and who understand the way the technology works basically have come to the conclusion that what we need to do is educate people about how the algorithms work 
how they make these decisions and educate the public about which algorithms the companies that you're dealing with uh, use. You know, are they pushing their own products forward to you when you go on Google and ask for, uh, you know, uh, kitchen tables? You know, so that's kind of a benign example. But if you're going in to ask about whether, you know, this issue is important, whether this statue should be torn down, whether we can talk about um, a part of our history and residential schools, if, if all that gets taken out, then there's no way to inform yourself about what happened and what is happening. And so others have, you know, as I say, people smarter than me have concluded, you just need to expose that. You need to say, this is how Facebook does it. This is how Google does it. Understand what they're doing and make your judgments about whether you want to uh, use their system or be one of their users or participants based on that knowledge. Certainly, the generations after us, that's second nature to them. They will understand how algorithms work and they will make those choices. It's still complicated for my generation, older generations, because we're still getting our head around technology and the impact it has on our life. But I think that's the only way. I think you have to come back to the public or the user or we are the media that concept again and put it in the hands of informed individuals and you need to inform yourself about how those platforms that you're interacting with actually work because otherwise it falls into the hands of uh, an arbiter that that has a point of view that may be conflicted and and that's going to break down the trust that we talked about much earlier even further. So I, I'm trying to avoid that because I don't want to see trust in all our in institutions fail. And, and I don't want, you know, us to live in these little echo chambers because that does not a society or a culture make. Yes. So I absolutely do agree with that. I think the other aspect, though, is I feel like we've forgotten about our competition laws. Like, you remember when Bell got too big and we just <laughs> broke it up, <laughs> you know? Um, yeah. I, you know, like, maybe Facebook and Instagram shouldn't be a single company. And and maybe Google and, you know, Google Search and YouTube shouldn't be the same company. I, I do think, you know, that concentration of market influence mm -hmm. that extends to the marketplace of ideas Um is dangerous and i think there's some opportunity there to to also protect the diversity of ideas that are available to people i i hope so i mean we've all had this experience of you know looking online for something because your sister asks you to look something up and then for the next month uh whatever you're reading whatever news story you're looking at whatever video you're watching you're bombarded with ads for that product. I mean, these algorithms are very, very efficient <laughs> in terms of uh, targeting you. And, and I've got no, uh, I mean, it may well be an answer that these huge monopolistic or at least very powerful because they cross so many different platforms, maybe they should be broken up and maybe they should 
pay more to operate and maybe they should have some rules around them on you know Canadian content although I think those kinds of concepts are really hard to protect in a global um system now or the way we consume things that's to me separate from deciding what twitter feeds get taken down and and what are allowed to stand um because that's a very 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 subjective decision and that can't be in the hands of people who are conflicted for whatever reason because they're conflicted politically because their government and they want to stay in power because they're Amazon and they only want you to buy products that they sell. And so they're not going to show you anything else because they just want you to focus on that. To me, it's kind of the same issue and it's taking away, um, you know, free choice, free speech, all of those things. And, and I'm, I know that that word has become sort of pejorative, you know, freedom to do this and freedom to behave badly and freedom not to get vaccinated and blah, blah, blah. But, but we have to, we have to go down to the basic ones because I do think that free thought and, and free speech is the way that we construct and change and preserve and grow the institutions that we have to have if we're going to function collectively. And we do have to function collectively if you choose to live um, in a country and be its citizen. Now, speaking of being a citizen of a country, you have spent a lot of your career in journalism, but you've spent much of uh, the later parts of your career uh, focused on the Canada-U.S. relationship. Mm -hmm. And uh, as you might recall, I'm a border city girl. I grew up in Windsor, Ontario. So I always ask people about the border if they have any, even the most tenuous relationship to the border. And you have a really, really uh, important uh, perspective on it. So I just wanted to get your thoughts. I mean, one of the consequences of the pandemic has been a thickening of borders. We've uh, mm-hmm. we've had we've had two presidents during uh, this pandemic. Uh, what's your take on the state of the Canada-U.S. relationship? Well, um, I I don't think it's great right now. I mean, people tend to think that liberals and Democrats get along and conservatives and Republicans get along. And so when when those two people are in each of the capitals, we all live happily ever after. There's absolutely no evidence of that historically <laughs> at all, period. Um, so, you know, tensions rise and pending on um, people's self-interest. That's how countries operate. I I went in as, um, of course, I'd been there many times as a journalist, been lots of places in the world, count myself very lucky for having experienced that perspective. But going into New York after 9-11, into a country where um, CNN was dutifully reporting 55 times a day that the terrorists came from Canada and had slipped over the border and feeling and watching a country who was who who wanted to build a wall everywhere, right? They wanted to become inward focused, put their backs against uh, the wall and and just keep everybody else out. It was a perfectly reasonable response to to what had happened. It was very hard to go in there as a diplomat saying, 
la, 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 the Canada-U.S. relationship is so important <laughs> and let's live happily ever after. I mean, it, it, it needed a, a very, very different approach. Um, and investment was huge money, you know, Wall Street, this is New York is not an entertainment post. It's an economic post, right? It is yeah. true that people come down and go to plays, but that's not what your job is. So it was about keeping those lines of communication open um, and reminding people when when the surrounding states, because we were responsible for those two, Connecticut and and. Uh, other places, you you go in and say, okay, here's the problem with a buy America only policy, right? It's not that we're going to get hurt, we are, but you're going to get hurt because you're not going to get anything you need because this is what you get from us, right? Here's all the things, I'm going to make a list. And then they go, oh, we didn't realize that that came from you. Okay, we better rethink that stuff. Um, so it's, it's always about that self-interest and making the case to them um, about why we're important to them, not by stating it emphatically. And worse yet, what Canadians tend to do is we tend to say we're superior to them and look at our healthcare system or we have other examples. And then that really turns people off. But to speak to them about their self-interest and the nature of this relationship is, I remember sitting at a table and there were all sorts of Wall Street people at the table, and they were talking about what had happened on 9-11, and the phone service went down. And this was still in the early days of, of cell uh, phone and cell service. And they were all talking about, thank God for their Blackberries, because they were the only thing that worked. And, and you know, what a difference it made. And everybody should have this. It's why the U.S. Congress got all got Blackberries. And I waited for this conversation. This was kind of a side conversation going on. And at some point, I just smiled and I said, well, you're, you're welcome. <laughs> and one of the guys looked at me and said, what are you talking about? And I said, well, we actually invented those things. And we feel pretty much the same way about them that you do. And it, it then a whole new conversation that started. Um, about what we do for each other. And I think we always have to be doing that with our relationship, not just saying we're your most important trading partner. So there you have to be nice to us. We have to always make it, and this works both ways. We have to make it about what's in it for them um, and, and assuring that there's always something in it for us. But that's a 24-7, 365 job. It's not just when things go wrong or when things are great. And it shouldn't be easier. Like one of the people I always quote, and I, and I put him in this essay too, just because uh, I love this sentence, but David Brooks, who's a, a writer, an American uh, writer. And, and this is, I mean, this just applies to so many things, but it goes this way. If you can't offer people a vision of what they should do, you won't be able to persuade them about the things they shouldn't do. And that just, touches everything. It touches the journalism conversation, the political conversation, the cross-borders conversation. We have to be able to explain to people that we have a reason, we have a vision, and this is why it's in our shared interest to do this. Because if, if you don't have that connection, you can't say, okay, you can't do that. That's against the law. That's against the rules. And and we need to be able to persuade one another. We, it's not going to work if, if everything has to be done by um, that's forbidden or 
against the law or that's against the rules. We've got to get back to a more civil conversation to, and sometimes that takes a lot more time, but I think it's worth it. Senator Wallen, thank you so much for this conversation and for all of your service to Canada. I really appreciated you sharing your perspective with us today. It was a good, really good conversation. I wish we could all be having it with one another on a daily basis, but you know, it's it's great to have this with you. I, I love how your brain works, so this is great. <laughs> Thank you so much. Maybe one day we'll even do it in person. <laughs> oh, God forbid. I don't know. 